I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Real Estate for Life. If you're thinking about buying or selling a home or moving to a more family-friendly or Christian area, please consider going to realestateforlife.org. They will pair you with expert real estate professionals who share your faith, and they will also contribute a portion of their commission to a pro-life charity of your choice, all at no cost to you. So to connect with a pro-life realtor, please visit realestateforlife.org or call them at 1-877-LIFE-US-1. Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and this is a podcast which will deliver hope in addition to some information to where we can better understand who we are as Catholics. I mean, this is so important and it's also good because as we develop our intellect, we grow closer to God. Thus, we better understand who he is and why he is. You see, what we believe in faith and what we discover by reason are not only compatible, but mutually beneficial. God is the source of both faith and reason and both faith and reason lead us to one truth, who is God. And that's what this podcast is all about, to lead us all to Christ. Our podcast has grown so much over the past three years, and we're always trying to record topics that are relevant, but also what our listeners want to hear. So if you want to send us any ideas or anything that you want us to talk about, you can always email us at podcast at arrayofhope.net. That's A-R-R-A-Y of hope.net. Also, if you're on Spotify mobile, swipe up while listening and take the Spotify exclusive poll. Today's podcast is an interesting one. We're going to be talking about relics and what they mean to our church and exorcisms and how the two are connected. We have Father Carlos Martins with us today, and this is going to be extremely fascinating. So sit back and relax and welcome to A Reason for Hope. And here we go. So Dave, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. Really good. I'm super excited today about our guest. We have Father Carlos Martins with us today, a well-known exorcist. Uh, He even has a very popular podcast called The Exorcist Files, which is very, very cool. He also has an evangelization ministry that uses relics to lead people to Jesus, which is called The Treasures of the Church. It's really, really beautiful. Yes, I've heard about that and the great graces that come from that, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it. It's an event that he puts on in different yeah. parishes. Yeah, he goes all over the country doing this stuff and 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 brings hundreds of relics to a parish and people come and and he speaks about them and explains what they are and and people gain tremendous graces from, you know, being in the presence of them. Yeah, well his ministry is just really powerful. I mean, he's got so many followers on his podcast. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Incredible. It's amazing. Um uh, do you have any relics? I actually do. Do have you? some relics, yes. Wow. I have a first-class relic of St. Therese that's, wow. uh, that's been passed down in my family. Cool. Um, I have a, a first-class relic of St. Maria Goretti that when my uncle passed away, I received that. And I actually have a 
second-class relic, which is the best you can get, at least currently, of Venerable Fulton Sheen. Now, I actually have a piece of his uh, stole. It's awesome. You know, a lot of people, Dave, uh, actually get confused about relics and about Catholics' veneration of relics. Uh, some Protestants even use this as one line of attack against Catholicism, saying that we worship the saints or attribute divine power to them. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, the veneration of relics actually is traced back to the earliest days of the church. In fact, there's an early Christian writing about the year 156 mm. that describes the death of St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John, right, right. the apostle of Jesus. After he was burned at the stake, we are told by his disciples, quote, we took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold, and laid them in a suitable place where the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves together as we are able in gladness and joy and to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. Mm, wow. Similar passages about other martyrs permeate the writings of the church fathers and numerous miracles uh, were associated with the bones and relics of these martyrs. And that only confirmed the validity of their veneration. Mm-hmm. Hey, want to help make this podcast better? Go to our survey URL in the show notes and leave your mark on A Reason for Hope. So this goes back to the early days of the church. There's also a scriptural basis for the teaching though. For example, in the Acts of the Apostles, I don't know if uh, you are aware that kerchiefs and aprons that simply touched the skin of St. Paul wrought miracles of healing. And those are just technically third-class relics. Right. You know, so, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, we're not even talking about first-class relics. And, mm-hmm. and people were healed just by kerchiefs that were touched to Paul's skin. Uh, also in the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the mere shadow of St. Peter brought about healings. People would be brought out so that Peter's shadow would pass over them. Wow. And so that's powerful. And that's right there in the Acts of the Apostles. The, the teaching of the Council of Trent states it plainly. While cautioning against superstition, the council affirmed that, quote, the holy bodies of holy martyrs and of others now living with Christ, which bodies were the living members of Christ and the temples of the Holy Ghost, and which are by him to be raised to eternal life, to be glorified, are to be venerated by the faithful. For through these bodies, many benefits are bestowed by God on men. So that they who affirm that veneration and honor are not due to the relics of the saints, or that these and the places dedicated to the memories of the saints are in vain visited with the view of obtaining their aid, are wholly to be condemned, as the church has already since condemned and also now condemns them. So the idea that the relics do not produce a benefit to the faithful, or that visiting a shrine to a saint doesn't provide such spiritual aid. That very idea is condemned by the church. In other words, it's affirming that spiritual aid is gained by by that. When you have relics that are displayed for veneration, like Father Martin's does in his Mm -hmm. um, Treasures of the Church Mm -hmm. um, ministry, you have to have a certificate. In fact, it's interesting. I have the actual certificates for 
the relic of St. Therese and St. Marie Goretti that I have. So they, there's an official certificate from an ecclesiastical authority that confirms the authenticity of the relic. And it's important to remember, and I think this is part of the criticism that's leveled against Catholics, it's important to remember that we do not worship but venerate the saints in venerating their relics. But, but this said, you know, we recognize that the body of a holy one is holy. In a way, to deny the power of relics is to put forth a false anthropology that would seem to imply that the saint was really just his or her soul, their spiritual aspect, and not their body, which of mm. course runs right against the teaching of the church. That would be a serious mistake. And this is also why, by the way, the bodies of all the beloved dead, the faithful departed, need to be treated with reverence and respect. And and that has its own sort of implications today because how do we look at, for example, the corporal work of mercy to bury the dead? Mm, yeah. You know, how do we treat the bodies <clears throat> of the dead when you've got like New York passing a law on human composting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah. maybe that's a future episode. Yeah, yeah. And, and to the Protestant's point, um, it's not the relic that is providing the grace. It's God working through the relic, it's always God. Right. So I think that's where sometimes the Protestants think that it's this body doing this magic, and it's not really. Just to offer clarity to a Protestant that might be listening, it's God putting that power in that relic. Right. So it, you know, it's always always points back to God. Right. God's allowing it to happen, and God is providing the grace. And the saints only us. holy because of that's right. God. Yeah. Great. Awesome discussion, Dave. Thanks again. We are all called to be good stewards, whether that means making wise financial decisions for our families, for our parishes, or for organizations that we may advise or direct. Owning gold and silver is easy, and we're happy to be partnered with St. Joseph's, who has exclusively focused on helping families protect their wealth in gold and silver for over a decade. Their pricing is very competitive, and their dedicated retirement team was recognized last year as only one of two dealers in the nation who meet the stringent criteria of integrity, value, and dependability by an independent trust company. Take the steps today to protect your family from potential financial stress and allocate some of your hard-earned dollars to gold and silver as good stewards. Go to www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope to learn how you can protect your loved ones at this important moment in history. Again, that is www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Alanis with Who's That Saint, where I give you guys three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? Starting off with clue number one. It's commonly known that the saint suffered from asthma beginning at the age of 10 after contracting cholera in the epidemic of 1854. Clue number two. This saint is considered to be a visionary, having visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the age of 14. Who's that saint? Clue number three. In total, Mary appeared to this young saint 18 times in the span of just five months, the final one occurring on the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel on July 16th. Who's that saint? If you guys guessed Saint Bernadette, you're correct. Saint Bernadette of Lourdes was a French nun who lived in the 1800s. As a young teenager, she had a series of visions of the Virgin Mary in the Massabiel Grotto, ultimately leading to the founding of the Shrine of Lourdes. 
Although Bernadette's initial reports generated doubt, her daily visions of the lady brought large crowds of the curious. The lady, Bernadette explained, had instructed her to have a chapel built on the spot of the visions. There, the people were to come to wash or drink of the water of the spring where Bernadette had been instructed to dig. She died on April 16, 1879, at the age of 35, and was later canonized in 1933. St. Bernadette, pray for us. Hey everyone, big news. AOH Music has just released their first extended play record. Live at Oceanway Nashville is now available on all music streaming platforms. Go check out the link fire in the show notes and spread the word to your family and friends. Even when the darkness of the world seems to be pressing in from all directions, we as Christians know that Jesus declared, you are the light of the world. A lamp is not lighted to be put away under a bushel measure. It is put on the lampstand to give light to all the people of the house, and your light must shine so brightly before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we are meant to push the darkness back. We receive our light from its source, which is Christ. And when we carry his light, we can dispel the shadows that advance. The Lord God is the light of the world, and by his providence and brilliance, we are able to see into the eternal depths of our own existence. Because he has destroyed death, we no longer have to fear the darkness. Darkness does not destroy the light, it defines it. Our light is the light of Christ. Thanks be to God, alleluia. Our guest today is Father Carlos Martins. Father Carlos Martins, a Vatican-appointed expert on relics, is the director of Treasures of the Church, a ministry of evangelization of the Catholic Church. They have an extraordinary collection of over 150 relics, some as old as 2,000 years. Its purpose is to give people an experience of the living God through an encounter with the relics of his saints in the form of an exposition. Father Carlos is also an exorcist for nearly two decades and has been helping our church combat spiritual warfare that has taken over our culture. Please welcome Father Carlos Martins. So, Father, so wonderful to have you here today on our show. Uh, thank you for coming and joining us. Certainly. Well, uh, I'm excited to have you on our show. Uh, you have a very interesting background that I'm going to share with our viewers and listeners. Uh, and um, uh, it, it, it's funny, you have sort of two things that you do that are, I feel are distinctly different. Uh, you're an exorcist, uh, and you're also someone that travels the country and shares uh, relics to the church. Uh, and, and explains them and, and really shows the importance of what a relic is for the, for the Catholic Church. So hopefully you'll be able to share how the two are connected with one another. But before I even get into it, let me ask you, so what drew you to becoming an exorcist and how did that happen? Yeah, so I, I, there was nothing that drew me. <laughs> an exorcist gets appointed. Uh, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't choose this ministry. Uh, so what happened was shortly after my ordination as a deacon, 
I was assigned to a church that was extraordinarily busy. There were three priests there, and I joined them as a deacon. And those three priests served as the exorcists of the, of, of the archdiocese. And they were so busy with cases, with individuals who were possessed or oppressed, partially possessed, that when something would come in that would be of a lesser sort, lesser seriousness, for example, a, a house infestation, a house that had diabolical phenomena happening within it, uh, one day one of them just turned to me and said, Deacon, go get rid of the devil. And <laughs> I had no training. And so, I, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that this is how people begin the ministry. I had no training. I was kind of just thrown into it. But I... I had an awareness, I had a kind of internal instinct that, well, if the devil is in a place or in a person, like wherever there is demonic activity, that that is happening for a reason. In other words, a door has been opened to the devil. And in order for the devil to leave, in order for him to be cast out, that door has to be closed. I mean, to state it in a different way, to state it in kind of, in, in, you know, juridical terms or legal terms, uh, the, the, the devil, where he is, he has rights to be there. And so as long as he possesses those rights, then he has a right to stay. So in order to cast him out, those rights have to be removed. And so right away, that dispels what a lot of people think is is what occurs in exorcism, that there's a kind of a clashing of the two persons, the exorcist and the demon, and the more powerful one wins. And, and that is not the case. It's, it is not a test of wills, because the will of the devil is always going to be more than a human's will. It is a an enterprise where you were removing the platform upon which the devil is standing. If the platform is gone, then he can no longer stand there. Hmm. Um, you mentioned something that uh, it, it's happening for a reason. Uh, what is that reason? Why, do, why does the devil or demons enter a person uh, and uh, cause this this craziness in, craziness in someone's life. Yeah. So uh, demons are in a state of constant pain. They're, they're, they're under a constant excruciating pain. And what gives them a certain measure of relief is to inhabit a person or a thing. Uh, and, and, and given a choice, they're always going to choose a person over a thing. Um, a thing could be an animal, it could be a room, uh, a house, it could be an object, an inanimate object. But there's a certain kind of relief that they are experiencing when, when they do inhabit. And, and for this reason, they don't want to leave. And, and you are cornering, so to speak, a caged animal or the equivalent of a caged animal when you confront a demon in order to, to cast him out. And our Lord hints at the kind of the agony they experience uh, in the gospel. He says, when a demon is cast out, he wanders through arid wastelands, dry wastelands. Other translations say deserts, looking for relief 
but finding none. And then what our Lord says is he goes back to see if he can re-enter where he came from. And if he finds the dwelling or the house swept clean, and, and the, our Lord is using an analogy of a person, if, if he finds that it is hospitable to him again, then he can enter again, he does so. And he brings seven demons more powerful than himself so that the second state of the person is worse than the first. Hmm. And, and herein is the pastoral approach that a priest, that an exorcist uses in his ministry. The person has to give his life to Christ. There's no such thing as neutrality. You either belong to Christ or by definition, you belong to the devil. And this applies across the board. You may or may not be possessed, but if Christ doesn't own you, by definition, you belong to the devil. And, and this is the, the, an echo of the sad reality, the tragic reality that happened at our creation. So when we were created inside our mother's womb, we didn't belong to God, and we sure as heck didn't belong to mom and dad. We belonged to the devil. Although our creation involved a divine act where God implanted a soul within us, so there were three involved in our creation. Mom and dad pr provided the biological parts. God infused the spiritual part. But at the moment God did so, then the penalty for sin took effect. And being the offspring of Adam, being descendants of Adam, the penalty for Adam's sin began to apply at that very moment that we existed. So although we had no actual sin, we possessed original sin. And that meant that we needed a savior. So the belonging to the devil, the, the fact that we were ownership and property, of that we were a possession of the devil, applied until the very moment that we were baptized. At that point, the salvation and, and the entire salvific effect of Christ then began to take hold. Mm. So we ceased to have the devil <clears throat> as our owner. God the Father became our owner. Christ became our Savior. The Holy Spirit began to dwell within us. We received the communion of saints as our family. We were infused with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, among them the greatest being the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And, and they're, they're, they're an indefinite number of effects. And those effects remained with us until the first time we committed a mortal sin. And at that point, the effects of our baptism ceased to be operative. And, and we reverted back to the ownership of the devil. And that, I mean, so to be clear, our, our baptism didn't cease to be effective, but its effects did. And that remained, that new state again, which was, which was a devolving into our old state, if you will, until we received sacramental confession. And then we, were, we are restored to the grace of our baptism. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of what I call the, the Catholic cosmology, the, the, 
the, the, the rules of, of the Monopoly board, if you will, mm-hmm. called light. Yeah, that was great. Great, uh, great description and really explaining it articulately. Um, why do you, maybe you can give us some insight as to why did God create these demonic creatures? What was his reasoning? What, why did he create, you know, why is the devil, why, did, why does God allow that to happen? Sure. Well, so, so God did not create the devil. God created angels. And he created angels with the capacity of a free decision. Uh, another, we might call it free will. But they, he created them, uh, as he did humans, with the capacity to, to, to accept him or reject him. And we know that a majority of the angels, we know it from Scripture, chose to remain in the grace of God, but one-third of them chose to rebel. And so that, that number, we're not told a specific number, but we are told it's a myriad. The, 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 the language the Scriptures use is myriads upon myriads, a, 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 an, enorm, an enormous, an immense number. So God created an order, an order of perfection, but an order that nevertheless, within the two types of rational beings that he created, angels and human beings, there was the capacity to reject him. And so Satan and his minions uh, chose to do that very thing, and they were cast out of heaven. So the, the, uh, the, the other question would be, or maybe an extension of your question, is why does God tolerate Right, the continued existence of those who reject him. And I guess there's a two-part answer to that. So God is a creator. He's not a destroyer. God permits evil to exist in order to bring forth greater good. And, and to put that in, in kind of a perspective on Holy Saturday Vigil, when we celebrate the, the mass of, of the Lord's resurrection, so that mass on Holy Saturday night is the longest mass of the year. The church calls that mass the, 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 the kind of the mother liturgy of, of the church. <clears throat> mm-hmm. There is a line within that liturgy that in Latin says, O Felix culpa, O happy fault. And it's referring to the fall of, the, of Adam that purchased for us so great a redeemer. Mm-hmm. So Adam's fall was disastrous. It was horrific. We have coffins today because of the fall. We have penicillin. We have winter jackets. We have snow plows. Uh, we have COVID. <laughs> we have HIV, diabetes, and every other illness because of the fall of Adam. Mm. We have hell uh, insofar as, as, as it can be a dwelling for human beings because of the fall of Adam. Nevertheless, his fall necessitated for us a redeemer. And that's what we obtained in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that the good far surpasses the evil. And so you could say, well, look, wouldn't it have been better if Adam had never sinned at all? And what the church is saying is no. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Leave it up to God. Create something. To create a plan B that is better than plan A. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Very, very cool. 
So um, have you noticed an increase in, in number of requests of people needing an exorcist uh, in, in our culture today more so than years ago? Uh, I have. I have. And and the reason for that is is simply the the repaganization of our culture. We, we Christendom has been eclipsed. We used to be a Christian society. You know, 50, 60 years ago, that's what we were. Um, even even more recently than that. But the whole the 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 basis of our culture, whether you were Catholic, whether you're Protestant in your community, it really didn't matter. It was a Christian understanding of reality that formed the basis of our culture. It formed the basis of our legal system. Well, that has been eclipsed. And so in the in in the midst of that, what has happened is what has happened in every culture when there is an embrace of paganism. And, and that is the, the, the demons come out, they come alive, a relationship with them becomes the, the normal course of events. And that's what's happening now. It's happening now in our schools with the way in which we're really abusing children by teaching them the, the, to be confused about their gender, for example, to be confused about their identity. You know, the most important thing about a human being is his or her identity. When you instill confusion in somebody about who they are and what they are, you've done the greatest uh -huh. disservice to them because what you're doing is committing psychological murder to them. And, and that will then form the, the basis <clears throat> of an, an apparent life. You, you've sent that person on to life, ill-equipped to take on life because they lack the very thing they need to live life. Hey, if you're enjoying this interview, be sure to check out the full video version on the Array of Hope channel. Subscribe for free at watch.arrayofhope.net. Then download the app by searching Array of Hope on your mobile device, Apple TV, or Roku. Um, can you share a little bit of what it's like to, to perform an exorcist as a priest? Is it, is it a, a it must've been scary initially. I'm, I'm sure you probably become accustomed to this, but what, what is that environment like? I mean, have you witnessed levitation and, you know, furniture flying and people speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff? Uh, well, I've seen all of those things. Um, you know, is it scary? In a word, no. And and I have to say, I, I can't really recall a single moment where, where I was scared, per se. I will be concerned <laughs> in a given situation, but not scared. And so let it's, it is a very good question. People ask me all the time, they ask exorcists, are you scared? And so the, the short answer is no. I respect the devil, but I don't fear him. What's the difference? And, and here's the analogy I always use to describe that. W within your kitchen at home, you have doubtless at least one knife, at least one, probably a whole bunch, but at least one that is sharp enough to cut you if you're not careful with it. Mm. So when you use it, you are careful with it because of what can happen if you're not. But as sharp as that knife could be and as 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 grave as the potential damage could be, 
if you're not careful with it, when you lie in bed at night going to sleep, you don't think about that knife and you don't, you don't lose any sleep worrying about what could happen with that knife. And, and if you did so, you yourself would agree that there's something wrong with your mental health if you do, right? And it's the same thing with the devil. I don't fear him, but I do respect him. He is dangerous. Next to God, and, and in fact, relative to the entire universe, the devil is a very minor reality. But he is dangerous. Mm. And so for that reason, he needs to be respected. Mm. I don't fear him, but I do respect him. Wow. I, when uh, you walk into a room and see diabolical phenomena, so you see a, a person levitating or an inanimate object levitating, you, you might experience very dramatic changes in temperature. Wow. Uh, so it'll feel like uh, you're near freezing in the room. You can see your breath. And at other times... It, it'll be so hot that you, you the, the sweat is pouring down your face. And, and move five feet over in that room, you can move from one climate into another. That in the very same room, the open room, you can have these two conditions emerging at one time. And, wow. and you know, so, and, and then a plethora of other things. Of course, the demon will be belligerent. The demon will be angry. The demon will... will speak in foreign languages and so forth, perhaps a foreign language that you know very well. I, I, I know I, I can function in different languages and he may choose to speak in one of those or I may force him to speak in one of the languages if I don't want anybody else in the room to know a certain detail, for example, and, 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 and he does it. So all of these diabolical phenomena the first time you see them, there is a certain remarkableness to them. You know, so if you walked into, into a room, Mario, and, and there's a chair levitating of its own accord, that might, let's say, freak you out. Not, not might. It, it would. <laughs> it would. It would. I'd, I'd wonder what's okay. going on. <laughs> so would it, would it also do that the 21st time no. that you saw it? No. Or, or the 121st time, right? At the 121st time, you might not even put down the cup of coffee from your hand, right? Yeah. And so there we are. There you have it. It's, so everything is relative yeah. with regard to this. It's uh, Everything it, is relative. It's amazing. Actually, it, it reminds me of a story. I can't remember if I read it or heard it, but I, uh, I remember hearing a story about uh, uh, Padre Pio where he was attacked by the devil quite frequently and had these brawls with the devil and would be bruised and cut and, and, and assaulted. And I remember reading that, uh, you know, he'd hear all this ruckus in the room and he'd be sleeping. He'd turn around and say, oh, oh, at the devil, oh, it's only you and roll over and go back to sleep. I don't know if that's a true story, but I heard it a couple of times and it's the same premise. It's uh, high respect for the devil, but uh, I, I, as long as you're, um, I mean, God wins, right? And if anything, right. describing what, what I'm hearing from you, it really, I would think it would try to keep us on track not to end up in hell, right? You know, to, to be void of mortal sin. If we're in mortal sin, get the confession. I mean, the last thing I want to do is spend eternity with the devil, you know? So you bet. 
It's, it's, it's great. So uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. So you're the director of an amazing apostle called The Treasures of the Church, an exposition that's uh, involving over 150 relics from every period of the church's history, including St. Joseph, the Twelve Apostles, uh, St. Mary Magdalene, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Anthony of Padua, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux, uh, St. Faustina, St. John Paul II. I mean, this is amazing. And you also have the largest remaining fragments of the wood of the cross in which our Lord died upon, and also the veil that was worn by the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is astounding to me that these things still exist. Um, Tell me a little bit about that apostolate and, and, and what your work is like. Sure, yeah. So just one correction I want to make. I I have some of the largest remaining fragments of the wood of the true cross. They are not the largest. Uh, There there are fragments within the city of Rome, uh, within the church of uh, the Holy Cross in Jerusalem, within the city of Rome that that are larger. But these are the largest traveling fragments. Uh, What is it like? Well, it's it's a Vatican ministry, so I'm, I'm in charge of this exhibit. And I... I get to give people an experience of the living God through the sacred remains of his saints and through these holy objects. And, you know, relics are mentioned within scripture in various places. The first reference is in the Old Testament in the second book of Kings, where we hear about a man who had died and was being buried. And inadvertently, as they were burying the man, so so the way that they dug graves in those days during that period is they dug a deep shaft into the earth and they carved shelves on the sides of that shaft. And when somebody died, they laid the individual's body on a new shelf. Well, as the man was being lowered into the grave, inadvertently, his body came into contact with the body of the prophet Elisha, who had, who had been previously buried there. And it says the dead man came back to life and rose to his feet. In... Uh, the Acts of the Apostles, we hear about in Acts 19, Paul being being so holy that when he would walk down the street, they would touch him with cloths and handkerchiefs, and then they would lay those on the sick, and it says two things would happen. Their diseases would leave them, and if they had any evil spirits, they would depart from them. We hear about in the the, the Gospel of Matthew, for example, a woman in a moment of light, a hemorrhaging woman in a moment of light, was was it was revealed to her by God that all she had to do was touch the hem of Christ's garment and she would be healed. And she did so, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, now, she didn't touch Jesus, but his clothing, and that was enough for the healing. And and in, in Mark's account, he even goes further, and he says, and has many people that touched it, they were healed. So there you have healing in these scriptural references to all three different classes of relics. We, we talk about, we, we divide relics into three classes typically. First class relics are the body or any part of the body of a saint. Second class relics are anything that a saint personally owned. Uh, a shirt, uh, mm-hmm. a piece of clothing, and we also rank within second-class relics the the instruments with which a martyr was killed. And third-class relics are anything a saint touched or that has been touched to a saint or to another first, second, or third-class relic. It's amazing. I see you have several behind you uh, right there. Uh, I think... I do. Yeah. Uh, 
when you and I uh, first met and we spoke over the phone, you were really um, clarifying for me the, the purpose of the, I guess the way the relics are displayed within the church and, and who should have a relic. Maybe you can articulate, well, I don't know if you remember that conversation, but maybe you could articulate a little bit more clearly, you know, how relics are venerated, how they're shared amongst the, the you know, the, the church, you know, et cetera. Sure, yeah. So it's it's customary to place a saint's relic inside every church altar. And, and this custom emerged from the very beginning of, of, of the church. So where a martyr would give up his life and, and where he was buried, the church would celebrate its liturgy over that very spot. And that, that so in other words, the, the tomb became the altar. And that tradition has continued to this very day. It's customary to place a saint's relic inside every altar, so that every, every altar is a tomb, so to speak. And when you see a priest kissing the altar at the start and at the end of Mass, that is what he is kissing. He is venerating the relics mm. that are contained inside the church's altar. And it used to be that relics were placed in something called an altar stone. Now they're they're permanently encased within an altar, but they would they would be, in the past, permanently encased inside a portable stone. And the reason for that is the, the, the church had a law that you had to celebrate Mass over a consecrated altar. And so if you were going to celebrate Mass at the local school, if you're a, a priest and uh, you had to celebrate Mass at school, uh, for the kids, or you were going to go on vacation and you wanted to be able to celebrate Mass while you were away, well, you went to one of the side altars in the church and you popped out the altar stone and you took that with you. And that was that became your altar while you were on the road. When you came back, you returned it uh, back to the church. So the universal rule, the, the requirement that that Mass can only be celebrated over a consecrated altar has been we've been dispensed from that um, so that the the altar stone so to speak is no longer needed but it is absolutely still the custom of the church to place relics inside every church altar so i'm sure there's a lot of forgery going on so how do you authenticate a relic okay so in order when when a relic is is issued by the church it's issued by an ecclesiastical authority. So either a bishop or an abbot or a, another entity such as the Vicariate of Rome, the Chancery of the Archdiocese of Rome. And there's a, the do, a document issued with it called the Authentic. The, the document certifies what it is. It states what it is. It's, it's notarized. It, it's got the seal of that issuing authority. And there's a seal in wax on the actual reliquary that has been issued. So in, in order to get at the relic inside that reliquary, you, you would have to break the threads and the wax seal that are there. So there's a kind of tamper-proof mm. certification that, that is evident on each reliquary. So the seal on the reliquary, the seal on the, on the document, they match one another. And so for a relic to be placed for public veneration 
there has to be that certification that the authentic has to exist. And if, if that is not the case, the church does not permit a relic to be used for public veneration. So there, there is a very exact and very careful procedure to issue relics to assure people that what is being proposed by the church to be a relic of a saint is what it is. Now, the, the church about 30 years ago changed its liberality with regard to the <clears throat> issuance of relics. Even lay people uh, at that time, up until about 30 years ago, could go to Rome and could make a request for relics, and the church would assign them. And they, of course, they were free. The, the, the church never sold them. You, you basically picked whatever reliquary you wanted in. You, you purchased a reliquary, and then the church would encase the relics within there for you. But because of abuses, because of, among other things, the de-Christianization of our culture, whereby you can no longer presume that somebody who is devout, that well, that when she dies, her children are going to take up uh, and respect the sacredness of the objects that she owns, uh, among them relics. And so what started to happen is they were discarded, they were thrown in the trash, or uh, they were sold on a black market, say, on, on an online auction site such as eBay. And so the church at that time changed its, its laws with regard to the issuance of relics and decided to no longer issue relics to individuals. So not even priests, not even bishops or cardinals for that matter. Relics are only issued to churches and chapels. So they're issued to dioceses to be used in public veneration. Gotcha. Um, so uh, I went to Italy about uh, three or four years ago, and I went to Assisi. And uh, I don't, I'm sure you have you ever been there, Father? I have, yes. So you know that the, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. And I, and I walked the path that St. Francis would walk, and there's like a, a bit of a top of a hill. And I've got this little place where St. Francis used to lie down and take his naps during the afternoon. And they've got this gravel there. Um, I have to say, I grabbed a bunch of gravel and, and, and took it back to America. In theory, that could be a third-class relic, right? Sure, yes. Amen, thank you for saying that. I got a bunch in my office. Uh, so uh, I believe in the power of, of relics. And uh, I'm glad you pointed out all those scripture references because sometimes my Protestant friends will challenge me, you know, and I and and I don't. I'm not quick to say, well, it, it's in the Bible. And you pointed out almost a half a dozen of them. So, uh, listeners and viewers, make reference to what Father just said because it's really powerful. Uh, that it's scripture based, which is really really awesome, um, Father. So there's like a real evangelization element to your apostolate, and and you preach as well uh, about the relics. And I am sure to to you go from parish to parish across the country, and I'm sure you witness some amazing things and healing. Maybe you could share some of the things that people that you witness that that people the healing that they receive from you know being in front of a relic. Sure. Yeah. Well. You know, there, there are healings that happen at every event, every exposition, and some of them can be very dramatic. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned in the scriptures, that any time relics are mentioned in the scriptures, there is always a healing. There's never not a healing. So um, I have seen uh, blindness cured. I, I, 
hearing loss, osteoporosis, cancers of every sort, stroke effects, even things like learning disabilities, Mm. all happening in the presence of relics. And sometimes it can be very dramatic where somebody experiences the healing right in the moment. At other times, they they don't experience it immediately, uh, but it emerges, say, the following morning. They wake up and now they can walk perfectly. And yesterday they couldn't. Uh, Or the aches and pains from the arthritis uh, that they normally experience is gone. Amazing. So there's there's no more pain any longer, uh, and so that that is a daily occurrence for me. This is what God chooses to do, what He likes to do in the presence of His relics, because He likes to draw attention to His saints. It's not that relics are magic; relics have no power within them. But God is a proud Father. He's very proud of His saints. And he likes to draw attention to them and to their activity. And he does so by sanctioning healings in their presence. I'm trying to uh, understand the connection between the very two things that you do, an exorcist and then someone that venerates and and shares relics throughout the church. How the two connected to one another? Sure. Well, part of the healing that one can receive is an exorcistic healing. Relics are exorcistic. And we hear about in the church fathers, so for I'm thinking of, for example, St. Jerome, the church father. He wrote a letter, uh, a, a letter to Vigilantius, Vigilantius. And it's available in English translation on the internet, so, so uh, you, you can access it. It's really fun to read because uh, Jerome was a very acerbic character. He was the Archie Bunker of the Church Fathers. Wow. So he was really an incredibly intelligent man, but very he, he would not stand by and allow any part of the church to have any disrepute put on it. So Vigilantius was against relics, and Jerome offers this plethora of reasons why relics are so noble and worthy of the veneration of the church, among the things that he identifies is the fact that in the presence of the relics, that demons howl as if they're Mm -hmm. being burned with invisible flames. So, So when a demoniac is brought in for exorcism, uh, we bring in relics and, and the demons despise them. They, they admit, they confess to being wounded by them that the sacred matter that once was part of the body of the saint is now kryptonite, so to speak, to them. They hate them. We, we hear uh, St. Saint, um, Saint Ambrose, the, the church father of Milan, mm-hmm. who received a dream one night from the two proto-martyrs of Milan, Gervasius and Protasius. They came to him in a dream. Their bodies were buried underground, uh, at the at the place where they were martyred, and they they wanted to be placed within a church. So Ambrose wanted to consecrate a cathedral. He needed relics for that cathedral, and so what he did was he set out to go find these underground bodies that the the general location of which he was shown in this dream. But where to find the precise location? Well, he was smart. He brought along a demoniac, and at a certain point. 
the demon cast the body onto the ground and started writhing. Well, Ambrose said, we, we found our spot. So they began digging there and they found two corpses that although they had died, gosh, over a century before, they, they're, the, the flesh was non-decayed on them and, and there was still wet blood on the bodies. Uh, in fact, you can, you can see the bodies today. They have, uh, they, they have skeletonized so that the flesh is no longer present. But Gervasius and Protasius uh, are present in, in Milan within the Basilica of St. Ambrose. Uh, so, so relics are exorcistic. And the, the ministry, within the ministry of exorcism, I bring relics in order to conduct <clears throat> that. And, and I, I talk about relics. I talk about stories of using relics within my podcast series. Uh, so the, the, I've done a series on exorcism called The Exorcist Files. It's <laughs> available for, for download whenever you're, wherever your, your viewers, your listeners access their podcast. But Perfect. if you don't know how to do so, Perfect. at uh, the, the website of the podcast, exorcistfiles.tv, it'll give you instructions on, on, on how to access them. And they are free. You can download them onto your phone. So, Father, uh, I got a bit of a chuckle uh, when you mentioned Archie Bunker because we're you're, you're referencing something from the '70s, and of course, I'm from the '70s, and you probably watched a lot of '70s TV. So, that's from the show, you know, All in a Family, and he was a very sort of in-your-face, uh, not politically correct kind of guy. So, it's great that you kind of use that reference. So, those of you that are much younger than we are. That's what the Archie Bunker reference was. So, Father, also thank you for sharing your website and and how we could find out about you know your work. Um, and, and maybe you can let us know where can we uh, find out where you're going to be touring the re relics. Sure. So the schedule for the ministry is always posted at treasuresofthechurch.com, and that will list where either where either in America or wherever in the world that the tour. It will be uh, where where it will be turning, where the exhibit will be touring. Uh, at the moment, your viewers are not going to see a schedule posted because having launched this podcast on the well, the Exorcist Files podcast, I knew that it was going to be it was going to keep me very busy, extraordinarily busy, and it has been. Uh, the podcast has been extraordinarily popular. And we produce each episode week to week, mm. uh, so it's a it's a uh, we have another four weeks of recording to do, uh, and so there there'll be nothing posted for uh, another four weeks. Okay, okay, uh, but by the time this uh, goes out, maybe uh, you gave us the information. Maybe people will be able to access it. Well, listen, um, thank you so much, Father, for your time. Thank you for your insights. Really for me, offered a lot of clarity uh, in both areas that we talked about. So, um, you know, thanks so much for joining us and God bless you and your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. God bless you. I'm so glad you joined us for this episode. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with others. Let everybody know. We need to let as many people know as possible so we can all get to know God better. And also, Please comment in the comment section. Give us an endorsement. This really helps us as well. We also ask you to prayerfully consider going to our donation page and help us in our work. Our partnership with you will allow us to continue to create these podcasts. 
just go to our website at arrayofhope.org. Also join us on social media where it keeps us connected with you and our faith through our music, videos, and daily reflections. There's lots of great stuff to share with you all the time. We do pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet daily on Instagram at 3 p.m. And join us as a universal church as we pray together. Our guest next time will be Dion DeMucci from Dion and the Belmonts. I mean, that's right. The group that created such hits as Teenager in Love and The Wanderer. First time we're going to have a guest on the show here that has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That is going to be a lot of fun. So please engage with our sponsors. They have been vetted by us here at Array of Hope, and you can directly help share in the efforts of the Universal Church by spreading the gospel. So thanks for joining us today, and there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.